I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. Certainly very miserly in the kitchen. You know, it's part of my DNA, I guess. When I was a kid, if my father had to throw a piece of bread out, he would kiss it first. And when he threw it out, it was to give it to the chicken anyway. The date is March 31st, 2020. And that is legendary chef Jacques Pepin. We need to be optimistic and we need to continue to have hope and courage and strength. And if there's one thing that we know about people is that we always find a way to rise after a crisis. And that is Roly Wesson, co-founder and executive director of the Jacques Pepin Foundation. They are our guests today on this special report of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is a special report of Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. As always, my great thanks to Sam Pellegrino for covering the production costs of these special reports. We wouldn't have been able to deliver them to you without them. So we've got two great guests today, Jacques Pepin, who of course needs no introduction, and Roly Wesson, the co-founder and executive director of the Jacques Pepin Foundation, and a culinary instructor and associate professor at Johnson & Wales University. I will more properly introduce the two of them in just a moment. I do want to tell a short story. It has nothing to do with food or chefs, but it does have to do with some drama that my family and I had in the middle of the night, or I guess I should say in the very early morning, pre-dawn hours this morning. And I wanted to share it because I just think it demonstrates the absolute insanity of what we're all going through in its own very small way. So we were asleep. My wife and I were in our bedroom. Our kids were in their respective rooms. Our dog was sacked out somewhere. And all of a sudden, our ADT alarm system went off. And I don't know if you know this, but an ADT alarm system is very loud. It's very jarring. And I have to tell you that I have been waiting. I'm not the only person I know. I know people keep saying that things aren't going to descend in terms of society. Um, You know, a lot of people are out of work or taking pay cuts or reduced hours. And I'm fully expecting the crime rate to go up. And so when the alarm went off this morning, my first thought was, here we go. Uh, It turned out when I checked the system that there was no breach anywhere. Uh, I got the call from ADT. It turned out that our carbon monoxide sensor had gone off. So I opened a bunch of windows. Caitlin, my wife, who some of you know from her joining me sometimes here on the intros, opened some windows. We roused the kids. We put a leash on the dog. We went outside. Now, Before the fire department came, the police came. And I said, you know, we haven't let anyone in our house in two weeks. And that is literally true. Nobody's actually two and a half weeks at this point. And, you know, if it was the carbon monoxide alarm, I was happy to just ventilate the house. It's not that cold here anymore in New York. 
and leave it at that. We were told that we had to give the fire department permission. At this point, uh, the fire department, and I should mention in our town, the firefighters are all volunteers. So these very kind volunteers who had gotten out of their own beds to come check on us, I didn't want to let them in my house. I really didn't. Um, The police said we had to do that for that kind of call. They did have these little sensors. So, you know, I let them in. Now, normally when that kind of thing happens or if anybody comes to my house, I introduce myself, we shake hands. We didn't do that. I think they thought I was being oversensitive. I personally don't believe I was. It wasn't like it was testy or anything, but they seemed very nonplussed about coming into the house. Um, And I felt rude. I felt just hugely rude to these people at 5.30 in the morning. They went through the house. They couldn't find any problems. They think probably we just need to get a new sensor for one of our uh, two devices that detect carbon monoxide. And I have to be honest, the minute they left, we broke out the Clorox wipes and we wiped down every light switch and every doorknob and everything else they might have touched, not because they seem sick or anything. And I have to say, having had people in the house, I now feel like we're on this 14-day clock that everybody talks about of, you know, this is now the, the most recent thing we might have to worry about, just like going to the supermarket. My point is, everything I just described seems completely insane. And I think all of it, on all sides of the conversations that were happening around this negotiation of coming into the house, was completely reasonable from each person's point of view and completely reasonable under the circumstances. And of course, I think it's just perfect. It's just the cherry on top that there was actually no carbon monoxide present in the house and it was a false alarm. Anyway, I wanted to share that. Have you had moments like that? I bet you have. All right, let's get to the show. First off, I'd love to hear from all of you or any of you about topics you might like to hear covered here or suggestions you might have for how these shows could be better. You can message me on Instagram at Chef Podcast, or you can shoot me an email or a voicemail via the links at the bottom of the andrewtalkstochefs.com website. So as I said, our guests today are the legendary Chef Jacques Papin, who, who really, I think, needs no introduction. Jacques is, first of all, an absolute legend. I can't even tell you how many generations of Americans and people elsewhere, but he made his, been making his home in the U.S. for most of his life at this point. I can't tell you how many Americans, including a lot of Americans who became great American chefs, first started learning about cooking from Jacques Pepin on television, along with you know his good friend Julia Child. Sometimes they did shows and books together. I've known Jacques in passing for a very long time. This was just my second time interviewing him for the show. The first time was only about nine months ago in, in Washington. It's an absolute honor to have him take the time to come on. Uh, I, I spoke last week about remembering, you know, knowing Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger from their days in the early days of the Television Food Network. Jacques, it's, you know, it's kind of in a similar vein. It's just, you know, he is one of these people. I've known who he was since I was a kid, since before I was interested in chefs or restaurants. So, it's just a thrill for me always to speak to Jacques. Um, he is joined by Roly Wesson. Roly is the executive director of the Jacques Pepin Foundation and a culinary instructor and associate professor at Johnson and Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island. He is also married 
to Claudine Pepin, which means that he is also Jacques' son-in-law. And while I don't think I could point to anything too specific in the way they interacted, you know, even though we were in different states, all three of us, uh, Jacques was in Connecticut, Rolly was in Rhode Island, I'm in New York, there, there's an energy between the two of them that I think just shows a tremendous affection and respect that, again, you'll just hear it. It speaks to me to the complexities of both being somebody's son-in-law, being somebody who practices the trade of an acknowledged living legend, and somebody who in the midst of all that, also took on the co-founding and and being executive director of a foundation that bears that man's name. So it is a seemingly, to me, a very special relationship, and I'm really glad for you all to get to hear this. So Jacques and Rolly are here to talk about the work that the Jacques Pepin Foundation does. They train people in the culinary arts with an eye towards giving them a way to gainful employment sometimes giving them a second chance in life, and to talk also about how that mission has been threatened in light of this crisis that we are all in the midst of. Along the way, in what is not a very long conversation, we found time to talk about how to make the most of what is in your pantry while the majority of the country is in lockdown. And Jacques shares some memories of his time as a kid during World War II when his family didn't waste a scrap of food, which of course is something a lot of us relate to right now. Again, the three of us connected over the internet via Zencaster. We had this conversation yesterday, Monday, and with that, here you go. There's so many ways in which the shutdown of restaurants and more broadly foods, let's call them food service establishments, are affecting this extended family of culinary professionals. Rolly, why don't you just talk for a moment just to kind of orient people about what exactly the Jacques Pepin Foundation does and how that's being impacted by what's happening right now. Sure. Well, thank you. So the Jacques Pepin Foundation was created to use culinary training to help adults with barriers to employment get into the workforce. So what we have been doing for the last several years is supporting organizations, community kitchens across the country that provide free life skills and culinary training to people who have been incarcerated or homeless or suffered with substance abuse, and just trying to teach them a basic set of skills that allows them to get into the workforce. At the time that we started and for the, most of the time that we've been in operation, food services had an incredible number of vacancies within its ranks. That is uh, something along the lines of three quarters of a million, 750,000 jobs have been available in food service and open nearly every month since we started. Obviously now that gap is kind of on its head. The idea that uh, food service is going to have tons of open jobs and that uh, we that culinary training is going to help people get them might be uh, upside down by the time we get to the other side of this health and economic crisis. Obviously, lots of food service operations are closing. There are going to be lots and lots of food service employees that are looking for work on the other side. And in fact, I think we really don't know what the restaurant industry, what food service is going to look like 
once we get to the other side of this crisis. When you say community kitchens, what exactly are we talking about? So typically these are operations that are run underneath of another organization, frequently a food bank. So for example, one of our great partners is uh, the Maryland Food Bank, and they have a culinary training program at their central facility in Baltimore. And through that uh, training program, they take in anywhere from 12 to 18 students at a time and run them through a 12 to 16 week culinary training program. The culinary training program provides them with a certificate of achievement, an educational certificate, as well as a serve safe food handler certificate. During the course of their training, they're actually cooking food that is being used in the hunger relief efforts of the Maryland Food Bank. So the community kitchen concept, while it's not explicitly defined, generally is about uh, not only culinary training, but also some hunger relief. And in some cases also includes a social enterprise. So uh, an organization might have an outlet bakery, uh, as in the case of Hot Bread Kitchen in New York City, which we also support. Uh, and so the culinary trainees might make a product that is then sold to the general public. Jacques, I've I've seen uh, you know uh, you know I'd spent some time on the foundation website. Um, Saw some pictures of you actually doing some teaching, spending time with people in these programs. Is that something that that you've been able to do on occasion? And what's that interaction like when you're able to spend that kind of time? Well, to start with, <clears throat> I'm a cook, you know, so that's what I do. Uh, I thank Rolly for organizing and setting up the the foundation. To I I couldn't do that, uh, but what I do, what I've done for over well, over 70 years now, is to be in a kitchen and cook, uh, regardless of the type of food, whether it's home cooking or three-star restaurant. So for me, that always has been my way of communicating with people. So yes, I'm, uh, I'm happy and gratified when I'm able to, to do things like I did with uh, Raleigh uh, a few months ago in Hartford, uh, working with a group of students, you know, showing them the right position of your hand, what you do, this, that too. And, you know, those are almost instant gratification <clears throat> that they get by being able to do something, to please someone. I mean, we're in the hospitality business. You know, the hospitality business is to give, is to love, you know. I mean, you cannot cook uh, indifferently. So uh, that's what I've been doing, whether it's uh, with a friend or with my wife or with my granddaughter or, or with anyone it is cooking in a kitchen. So this is my my element, and that's what I do. It strikes me that a lot of what the foundation does, and you just described it, I think, very eloquently, I think it does sort of flow from some of the great traditions uh, associated with cooking and more broadly with hospitality. Uh, one of those, obviously, is, is to give, as you just said. Uh, the other is that, you know, cooking is one of, I think, you know, one of the, the few things still in the modern world that still depends on this very traditional means of, of uh, teaching. It's, it's something that's passed down from one generation to another, generally speaking, in a, in a kitchen. Uh, and it seems to me that the work of this foundation really sort of embraces both of those traditions at the same time. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly, even in our, in our time now, which is a very stressful time, 
there may be some uh, some good thing coming out of it. Uh, maybe the the people who cook like once a month or once a week now are stuck at home with two or three kids and they have to cook every day. And maybe the kid will uh, start learning how to cook with their parents and more than cook, sit down around the table and uh, share the food and talk about things. Uh, and that's a very important part of life for me, certainly, which had kind of uh, not disappeared but was minimized in, the, in those last years. So uh, this may be a good thing which will happen. I mean, to get close to, to nature, uh, to go outside as I did uh, a couple of days ago to pick up wild dandelion, you know, and do a salad with it, to do your, to do the, the you know, your garden. I mean, when my granddaughter was uh, two years old, she'll come to, to my house and I say, get me some parsley out of the garden. So I say, no, that's not parsley, that's chive. Test it. This is tarragon. This is parsley. And then I take her to the market and I say, I need pear. Make sure they are ripe. You have to smell them. You know, the tomato, you have to smell them. And she come back and, and stand on a stool. She's taller than me now, but she stand on a stool and uh, uh, give me stuff to cook with. And we talk about that. And, you know, that's a way of communicating uh, for me, certainly with the teenage and so forth. So, you know, th those things maybe we'll see a, a renaissance and coming back a little bit. And that would be a good thing. I think that central to our philosophy around the foundation and, and central to Jacques' philosophy are, are two ideas. One is that food brings people together. And just as Jacques described so nicely his relationship with my daughter, his granddaughter, and, and how, that, how that relationship is sort of built on this understanding of food or how food is incorporated and the idea of coming around the table and, and getting together not only with your friends, but with people that you don't know. And, and you know, we often when we want to make a friend, we invite them over for dinner. So I think uh, you know, food obviously brings people together. And then the other piece is the idea that culinary skill and technique and training is empowering. That is, when somebody learns how to cook, it gives them a certain amount of freedom. You're able to create something for yourself. It gives you an idea about how to create better pathways for health for yourself and to take care of your family and nurture your family and to give you job opportunities. So that, those two ideas, I think, are, are central to, to Jacques' thinking and also to the thinking of the foundation, which is food brings people together and culinary skills are empowering. I agree with that, certainly. And uh, for me, uh, I have done so many shows for the last 35 years on television and so many technique-oriented shows where I show people how to, to sharpen a knife or, or, or peel a potato the right way. So... I have been told, uh, to a certain extent, it's true that French cooking or French technique are not really necessary anymore. And uh, to a certain extent, there is some truth in it. By this, I mean that uh, those classic techniques of uh, doing stock and reduction and demi-glass and all of that, I haven't that, done that for <laughs> four years. You know, what I show people in terms of technique is universal whether you cook uh, Chinese or whether you cook, uh, you know, Turkish or whatever, how to peel a, a, an asparagus and how to whip an egg white and how to sharpen a knife, this is useful. And this is what we are trying to teach to those people, those basic things. 
Well, I have to say, Jacques, I don't even know if you know this about me, but I am a graduate of the La Technique program from the French Culinary Institute when uh, yeah good when it yeah. when it's now the ICC but when it was right. the French Culinary Institute I actually was a student of the La Technique program which you designed um and you know the, I always found that to be a very compelling argument that once if you do have a mastery of basic technique you know knife skills different types of cooking methods and whatnot you basically can cook anything you can follow any recipe and I do believe that holds that holds true. It's a great gift to have that. Rolly, you know, community kitchens, I, I I expect in a lot of places, even where where restaurants maybe are not operating, I imagine uh, uh, some of those kitchens are still operating, so we may not know what the landscape will look like when this crisis is over, but am I correct in assuming that, that for some of the people... Uh, associated with the foundation who are learning out there that their their education and their their service is going on as we speak? Oh, yes, absolutely. Basically, what we're hearing from our community kitchen partners is that they are all in the state of pivoting. That is, they are trying to figure out how to uh, utilize the space that they have, utilize the people that they have in order to continue to do the most good. I mean, it for anybody who works in social services or in philanthropy of any kind, it's so obvious that everyone in that industry, in that space is just so big hearted. You know, everyone wears their, their empathy on their sleeve and, and is just doing everything that they can to, to help others in, in so many different ways. And so what we're hearing from the field is that uh, programs are trying to figure out how to uh, redirect what was once their retail bakery into uh, a grab-and-go kitchen for uh, middle school students and elementary school students. So a lot of programs, a lot of the um, food banks have summer programs that they activate in order to help children and school children get a meal during the summertime with the recognition that during the school year, a lot of students get their best meal of the day, if not their only meal of the day at school. So we're hearing uh, about organizations that are pivoting their culinary students to prepare these grab and go lunches for, for, for kids. And, and also hearing about um, organizations that are um, setting up feeding kitchens for restaurant workers, because uh, for all of us who've worked in the restaurant industry, uh, it's easy to remember that time when we were living paycheck to paycheck without health insurance and without any security. I can't imagine for you know probably 20 years of my career, if this current uh, tragedy had happened, I would have been I would have been sunk immediately. I would have had uh, nothing to fall back on. So obviously, uh, restaurant workers are going to be very much under duress, and so it's great to hear of uh, hunger relief organizations helping them as well. No, it's been amazing. I mean, I had the opportunity. I'm hoping he he may be coming on the show later this week. Edward Lee, um, who's started the Restaurant Worker Relief Program, which is actually yeah. a national network of those kitchens, has been, to my mind, nothing short of heroic. Um, yeah. Uh, and and what he basically took on with, you know, like two two other people, and and has grown, you know, seeded this amazing uh, movement. I think it's becoming. I, I have another question or two about the foundation, but first I have to ask Jacques. Um, uh, you know, Jacques, your your book, uh, The Apprentice. Uh, you you talk about uh, your time back uh, during World War II and how resourceful a cook your mom was at home. Jeff Gordon here just wrote in Esquire 
last week about a visit he made to you in Connecticut where you were showing him how not to waste food. Can you just speak for a moment? You mentioned this a, a few minutes ago. A lot of people are cooking at home who maybe don't cook that much normally, but also a lot of people who do cook a lot are all of a sudden, you know, being very um, uh, careful about not throwing away vegetable scraps, herb stems. I, I have a red onion in my little basket in, of aromatics in, in my uh, kitchen that, you know, it's, it's lasted about a week. <laughs> I just keep taking a little wedge of it. Can, can you just speak generally? What are, what are some ways people can be thinking about cooking at a time like this where either they don't have as much, I mean, to be honest, they're maybe conserving money, so trying to get the most out of it, but also a lot of people just don't want to leave their homes to go shopping if they can put it off. Yes, I mean, I'm certainly very miserly in the kitchen. You know, it's part of my DNA, I guess. But uh, uh, in, a, in our time now, certainly there, there is what we do is maybe more important than ever because, I mean, maybe you cannot go out to see your friend. Uh, maybe you cannot even go out to walk, uh, but you still have to eat every day. And uh, we've been, I've been doing some show that Claudine put on Facebook on what to use in your pantry and what to use one thing or another. And there is a great deal to, to be learned there. Uh, certainly for me, I never throw anything out. Uh, uh, when uh, I was a kid, if my father had to throw a piece of bread out, he would kiss it first. And when he threw it out, it was to give it to the chicken anyway. So uh, a bread for me uh, is never to be thrown out. I mean, you can re-wet your bread, your baguette, put it back in the, in the, in the oven for 15 minutes and it recrisp it and you have it. There is hundreds of things like that that we do at home almost automatically that people would be happy to learn about, you know, to be able to, to, to feed people with a minimal amount of, uh, of uh, whatever you have in your freezer, on your refrigerator, or, you know, yesterday I did what my, call, my wife called fridge, fridge soup. And the fridge soup is that I, I serve everything in my refrigerator. I have some wilted salad. I have a piece of cucumber, a piece of zucchini, uh, a piece of uh, half a tomato, a piece of onion, anything kind of more... Uh, getting uh, uh, wilted or whatever, we cut it together, water, a dash of salt, bring it to a boil. I finish it, I finish it up with some uh, oatmeal or some couscous or some salt pasta, and we do a soup. I mean, we do that all the time at all. It's part of the way we cook. And it's one thing that uh, most of the cook in the world, from China to West Africa that have been, know about it, but it's one thing that we don't know in America. We ne never, there is never any place in the world where you, where you, you know, spoil food the way, the way we do here. And it's a good thing for people to learn how to use leftover. Now, you don't call it leftover. You know, it's already derogatory. It's just that you have something leftover and then you do a new dish with it. You create a new, a new conviction. And sometimes the second, the second using of that same food is better than the first one. So, you know, it, Again, so that's where the knowledge of a cook comes in. Thank you for sharing that. No, it is funny. And even when you mentioned uh, in the soup, you said wilted greens. I mean, wilted is not spoiled. No, of course. It doesn't look as pretty. It's not as pleasing to the eye. But there's a huge, uh, there's a huge space between wilted and spoiled. And that is something people should be exactly. mindful of right now. Yeah. So yes. 
So, Raleigh, when we think about the foundation, I mean, obviously people are being asked to help in, in all kinds of ways right now, but is there even a is there a sense yet of how people who are listening, you know, who who are thinking about the 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 way the market might change for employment opportunities for these people? I mean, as you said, it may be the opposite of what we had when the foundation started, which is a shortage, certainly in this country, of cooks. There's probably gonna be you know, just a wealth of cooks for the inevitable slowdown and and to be brutally frank, you know, closings that are probably going to happen. But how can people help these people? Do we call them students or, or participants in the program? Um, is it clear yet how people can help out or will that be not clear until later? Well, I, I think that there's going to be a readjustment process when we get to the other side of this. And uh, I don't think it's very clear at all at this point what that readjustment process is going to look like. And I, I would, I would be, uh, it would be incorrect to, to make a guess about that. Uh, but I can see, like I said before, uh, you know, we believe strongly that cooking skill and technique is empowering and, uh, that, that is never going to go out of style. So for example, we may not be teaching people, culinary skills in order to get jobs on the other side of this, but we might be teaching people culinary skills so that they can better use their SNAP benefits. For example, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a rich program that comes out of the farm bill that's for uh, SNAP education. And I can imagine that there might be a lot more people that are collecting uh, food stamps and um, having food insecurity that might need some help with using those products. I think this idea of pantry cooking that we're all sort of, uh, those of us who cook are sort of toying with in the, you know, quarantine cooking, pantry cooking. I think there's a lot of interesting things there. I did a, I did a dish yesterday of, uh, of some dried red beans and, and a little bit of pork and a can of tomatoes, all of which I had readily available, did it in the pressure cooker. It was done in 45 minutes and it was delicious. And I was thinking, you know, this is a relatively inexpensive and quick thing. So uh, I guess the point is, we don't know exactly what these culinary training programs are going to look like, but we strongly believe that culinary training still has a place and, and will still be important. And the other thing that we know is that uh, um, philanthropy is going to change, you know, with the, with the stock market going the way that it's been going for the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to predict where funding is going to come from. One of the things that Jacques and I have been working on and we're, we're very excited to roll out here in, in just a couple of days is an emergency relief fund. And we're not quite sure whether we're going to direct that towards uh, restaurant workers, which is uh, you know part of our heart and soul to support the hospitality industry, or whether we're going to look towards our uh, community kitchen partners that have social enterprises. But we have a, a couple of really beautiful uh, pieces of art that Jacques uh, is the artist of, and we, uh, we have formatted them into a, a poster, which is going to be relatively inexpensive, but all of the proceeds are going to go towards this emergency relief fund. So we're super excited about that. Oh, that's great. And if people want to keep praised of what's going on on that front, what's the best thing to do? The follow the Instagram account for the foundation or sure. They can follow our Instagram, Instagram account, which, which is the Jacques Pepin foundation or they can go to our website, which is www.jp.foundation. We, we stay on top of that pretty well. At the moment, there's a, a banner there that talks about the emergency relief fund. But these, uh, like I said, these um, poster prints are going to be 
available as a gift to anybody who makes a donation here. Uh, probably uh, within just a couple of days, we're we're almost there to announcing the release. Well, I appreciate both of you making the time during this. I don't even know what we call it anymore, but this extended surreal moment we're all in. No, I think I think there is good thing which can come out of this because regardless of whether you learn how to spend less money uh, in your food, you will get more out of it because uh, ultimately, whatever happened, you still have to eat every day. And uh, it is good to eat together. It creates a great deal of uh, affection and love. So uh, we may have good things coming out of it. I mean, we have to be optimistic and look at it this way, in my opinion. Well, that's very wise. Thank you for that. Rolly, very good to meet you. Very nice to meet you, Andrew. Thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate everything that you do for the hospitality industry. And, oh. and we appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us today. And, and I just want to echo Jacques' thoughts there that we need to be optimistic and we need to continue to have hope and courage and strength. And if there's one thing that we know about not only our industry, but about America and about people is that we always find a way to, to rise after a crisis. And I think uh, we don't know how long this is going to last. The uncertainty is probably the worst part, but I feel confident, as Jock does, that that will be better and stronger on the other side. I, I could not agree more with everything you just said. You're echoing a lot of things I've been saying in the last few yeah. days on this show and, and also in my, in my private life. I, and I do think it is important... Look, we're all there's a lot to be sad about. We all have to process all of that. The uncertainty, I think, is um, big. I mean, that's a big factor in how this is hitting each of us. But I do think it's crucial to stay optimistic at the end of the day. I think it's absolutely essential to how we're going to come through this. Yep. Thank you for having us and make sure to cook with love. And that's our special report for today. Again, my huge thanks to Jacques Pepin and Roly Wesson for coming on the show. Again, the website for the Jacques Pepin Foundation is jp.foundation. Thank you to Wild Turkey Surprise for today's opening music and to After School Special for the music you're hearing right now. Please seek them out online and enjoy more of their music. Thanks to our engineer, Margaret Kelly, for mixing these special reports. Our thanks to Sam Pellegrino for making these special reports possible. And to all of you out there in podcast land, thank you for listening. Please take care of yourselves, take a breath, and we will all get through this together.